diving into another passage. And just to let you know that I am aware that there is a thing called Zoom fatigue. Many of you, in fact, even in your regular jobs, I know that uh, we have somebody in our household that's working full-time from home with lots of Zoom meetings. And I think it's good for you to know that we're trying to do everything we can to make these services interactive and fun for you and to get you involved as much as possible. So we're doing something new that I'm gonna tell you about today. We're gonna to start with Smell-O-Vision. <laughs> and the way you'll do this is that you'll download a special app. And the way you do that is you go to the store and you buy the right set of candles that go with each passage. And for example, next week, we're gonna need you to buy the donkey candle, and the camel candle, and also the Jordan River candle. <laughs> and then at the appropriate time, when I put the little thing up on the, on the prompt, it will show you when to light which candle. And then that's gonna put you right into the middle of the story and make you feel like you're just a, a part of the biblical narrative being taught about. So just uh, wanted to let you know that we're doing all we can to make this as interactive as we can. All right. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, and I appreciate Jesse preparing us by reading through that entire passage. I hope you have a Bible in front of you so that you can follow along as we look at these uh, verses in chapter 6. I appreciated Mark's study from last week, and uh, he did a great job helping us understand a few of the things that Paul was trying to get across as he continues to hit some of the dysfunctions he heard about after he had left Corinth and was getting word from Chloe's household. He was very specific about which household had sent him the news about some of the things that he needed to address in that new church there in Corinth. Just to kick things off, I want you to know that sometimes conflict hits us today too. It's not just way back there in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Kids will be kids, but sometimes when kids are acting like kids, they can do things that are harmful, and that happened to our next door neighbors, because my dad had a, what we called a doughboy pool. I don't know why they called it that back then. It's basically a, an above ground pool with a plastic liner, like the kind at Clark's Corner. I know you know about that. Uh, but my dad had done something cool and he had a backhoe operator nearby that he hired to come dig a hole. So we sank our doughboy pool, an above ground pool and made it a built-in pool, but it still had a plastic liner. And there was only about a foot of the pool that stuck out of the ground. And then we had a ladder that went over the edge. But our next door neighbor kids were kind of acting squirrely one afternoon when we were gone. And this in Phoenix, even though things are warm there, it was very cold because it was in the winter. And so, you know, in Phoenix, things can get really cold, like getting all the way down to like 40 degrees. Mm -hmm. And the water was pretty chilly, but these kids were doing something and they took some of these big red sandstone flagstone pavers that my dad had put around the pool for a walkway. And they threw some of those huge stones, those rocks into the pool. Unfortunately, these were not smoothed edged rocks. They were natural rocks that my dad had brought down from Sedona, Arizona, and they had real sharp edges. And those sharp edges did to plastic what you can expect rocks to do to plastic. It poked holes in the bottom of our pool. Not a good thing, especially not when it's not an above ground pool, so you can't just easily drain it and fix the holes and then fill it back up again. So there are a couple of things my dad could have done in that conflict situation. 
he could have called the neighbor and reamed him out, or he could have stormed over to his house and banged on the door and had a sternly worded talk, <laughs> or he could have taken him to small claims court and made him pay for the repair. But instead, my father got a patch kit that could be applied while underwater and in very cold water. I remember watching him shiver as he dove down, holding his breath as long as he could each time. It took him a lot of times to do it. And he fixed each one of those little holes and then came up and toweled himself off and took a warm shower. The next time he ran into the next door neighbor across the patio, uh, he just hollered over and asked if they could chat for a minute. And he told him rather nonchalantly what had happened and how his boys had thrown those rocks in the pool. Well, our next door neighbor was able to handle that because he had some discipline to take care of with his own boys, but he did so in an appropriate manner. And it was important for my dad because my dad didn't want to destroy what had become a good relationship with that next door neighbor because we still had to live next door. And one other thing that's important, especially because of this passage that we're looking at, our next door neighbor was a believer. My dad was a believer. They had something really in common that went much deeper than most typical next door neighbor relationships. And my dad knew because of the passage that we're studying that it was important to try to do all we can to display grace to one another and to foster unity. We can still speak the truth, but we should do so in love. So that, set, that sets the stage, I hope, for some of the things that we'll be looking at today as we think about what happened back in Corinth that caused Paul to write such a sternly worded letter to the people in Corinth. My dad's response was exactly what Paul was hoping the church in Corinth would be like, but they weren't. Contrast what was happening back in Corinth in the early church in the first century with what we see on court television today. You know what court television is like. It's supposedly these real life situations. I can't help but wonder if the producers like to kind of ramp things up a little bit by asking people to act a certain way. I'm sure that never happens, right? But we'll tune into this kind of stuff where court cases, usually civil cases, are being shown as entertainment. Now, some people think that's really entertaining. They love to watch other people's conflicts play out in public. Some other people, because of their personality types, don't want to see that kind of conflict. I'm one of those persons. Uh, I'm one of those persons that thinks it's very uncomfortable to watch people become uncomfortable in public. And so I typically don't want to watch that stuff. But occasionally, I kind of have to because, for example, I'll be waiting for somebody in a waiting room at a doctor's office if, I, if I've taken them to an appointment. And then a court case is on the TV and there are other people glued to that television set. So I don't want to be that guy to walk up to the television and change the station for fear that they might take me to small claims court. You know, I don't know. But I have to watch it anyway. And it makes me very cringy and uncomfortable. But that's what was happening in a sense with the people in Corinth because things were very public. And in some cases, you would literally go to a public outdoor venue in order to try your civil case. So other people could come and literally watch what was happening, watch the proceedings, and they didn't even need a television set. So that's what was happening in Corinth. Paul recognized it's not a healthy thing, and he wanted to let them know, this is not the kind of entertainment we should be providing for the folks out there, especially if we're trying to reach them with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it's tainting our witness, 
and it's bringing shame on the gospel and upon the church. Paul knew that how people handle conflict, especially with fellow believers, reveals character. If you look at a good broad brushstroke look, uh, a view of Paul's overall doctrine and some of the things that he felt were really important, looking at all of his letters and in the book of Romans especially, you see an awful lot of good things happening there. We understand that Paul talks often about the old nature, that sinful nature, the nature that kind of has a tug of war with the spiritual nature, because even though we're in the transforming process so that the Holy Spirit is transforming us, conforming us into the image of Christ, we're still having that tug of war because we're not perfected yet. That's that sanctification process that takes a lifetime to happen. And so we all know that we still fight that old nature. So with that in mind, as some of Paul's basic teaching, he knows that the people in Corinth are still fighting against the old nature. And so how we handle conflict is going to reveal which of those two natures we're giving into. Are we allowing the old nature to take hold? Or are we putting that to death, in a sense, by saying that we're going to allow that to be co-crucified with Christ on the cross, so that the new nature, the spiritual nature, God's Holy Spirit, will come to the forefront and be able to show us what Christ is like so that we can be Christ to other people around us, even in the midst of conflict. Old nature versus the new nature was very real and very present. And Paul, even though he had been in Corinth for a number of months, there for a long enough time to do some good, solid foundation building and leader training, because he had appointed people, some leaders for that church, and had trained them well, and then he left them in capable hands of people like Apollos, and then left to go and do work in other cities as well. But he knew that this old nature, new nature was still a big factor among them. Well, it's interesting because I've noticed that when I watch people commenting on television shows where they have court cases being played out, things like, your cat came over into my yard and ate half of the pie that was cooling on the sill, and I'm suing you for that, or something as silly as one neighbor switches out hubcaps. He takes his old scratchy hubcaps off of his car and replaces them with his next door neighbor's nice new shiny hubcaps. I mean, who does that stuff? And that's what we do. We love to comment on it and says, who does that? Or isn't it incredible that he would think he could get away with that? Or of course she owes the rent. You don't just move into an apartment and just not pay rent for six months and expect to not have anybody say something. But you know, you love to hear the comments, don't you? That's what people were doing as they were watching these court proceedings. And I'm sure that some of them were saying, oh, and these are those Christians. They should know better, shouldn't they? Can you imagine hearing, now that's just my speculation, but can't you imagine hearing people looking in at these people who are following Jesus Christ, trying to present the gospel and saying, it's a gospel of redemption, it's a gospel of love, it's a gospel of forgiveness, and yet they're tearing each other apart publicly in court. I can see why that would be a poor witness. That's exactly what was happening in Corinth. The people were providing entertainment, but the wrong kind of entertainment. So, in 1 Corinthians 6, let's walk our way through the passage that Jesse had read for us in preparation for today. First of all, we need to make a differentiation between civil matters and not criminal matters. Some of the things that Paul was addressing in this specific section of his letter in 1 Corinthians had to do with what would consider, be considered probably smaller cases or nominal cases, trivial cases. He even uses in some translations, it comes through as trivial 
These were the smaller cases that I'm sure he would have thought, you should be able to work this out. This is not big stuff. This is not a murder case. This is not a felony. We're talking about very small infractions. And isn't there anybody among you who's smart enough to be able to help you mediate these cases? You can look at Romans 13 and see that there are times when, of course, we need to avail ourselves of the judicial system put in place in our governments to help bring order into society. And Paul recognizes that as well. So we just need to make sure that we understand this is not something we should do if somebody comes across and murders us and we say, okay, well, you're forgiven because you're a fellow believer. No, no, no. That's time for the court system to step in and we need to avail ourselves of that. But these matters were between believers and they were small matters that Paul thinks should be small enough they should not have taken them to court. Verses two and three, we can see that after Christ's return, Paul's looking ahead in history and giving us a little bit of a hint, a bit of a clue about God's plan for the future. Because at some point when Christ returns, he's gonna usher in this great new world. Everything's gonna be restored, it's gonna be made right, true justice will be meted out, and those who are in Christ are gonna be co-heirs with Christ, and somehow, I don't know how specifically, people kind of debate this, we're gonna be ruling as well. We're not gonna be sitting on a cloud just playing a harp and singing Kumbaya endlessly for eternity. We're gonna be doing things. It's gonna be very active and fulfilling, which means that there are gonna be some people who have to make judicial decisions. Now, it's gonna be easier to do that because sin is not gonna be tainting things the way it is now, but we do know that we're gonna be very active. So Paul is saying, He's using kind of an argument of greater versus lesser. He says, in this greater world to come, where we're going to have great things to be able to, to judge, judging over men and angels, don't you think we ought to be able to handle the smaller stuff now and judge over the little things that we need to be judging about? Verse 4, why go to the Gentile, or in his case, secular, or he'll even use in some translations, pagan judges? Why do we step outside what we already know from the Talmud, which was a collection of some of the oral rabbinic traditions, helping them understand what some of these civil laws should be like. There was the first section called the Mishnah, which laid out a lot of these civil disagreements and how people should respond to them. They already had some things in their hands from their Jewish background that would have helped them understand how they could mediate these little disagreements that they had among them. He says, why are you gonna take this out to the Gentile or secular judges? They don't even understand what we're about as a people of God. And if they're worshiping false gods, they have a tendency to kind of rule the wrong way. And if what you're doing is just trying to find a bunch of people outside the community of faith to agree with you in your side so you can get what you want, you're cheating one another. It's not the way to go about doing this. These outsiders, these Gentile judges, are essentially illiterate. He doesn't mean they can't read. They could read Greek and probably Latin and maybe some other languages but they were illiterate when it came to the Jewish law and the matters contained in the Talmud and the Torah. So since these Gentiles were completely different, they didn't understand what the Jews were about, Paul says, you have everything you need within the community of faith to be able to tackle this stuff. You don't need to go outside. Verses five and six, Paul says, in this case, yeah, you really should be ashamed. Back in chapter 4, I believe it's verse 14, Paul had said, I don't say this to shame you. I'm saying this to admonish you as a loving parent would admonish his beloved children. But in this case, he's saying, yeah, 
you, you should be ashamed on this one. I'm saying this to your shame because you're bringing shame on the gospel. It's bad enough that you really should be ashamed about that. And when I come to you, I'm going to have to really lay into you if you don't take care of this. He's asking, isn't there anyone in all the church who was wise enough to decide these issues? That also kind of lets us know that he's looking at the leaders and holding them responsible for not holding the congregation responsible. As Mark mentioned last week, there are times when he's saying, look, guys, I've appointed leaders among you. You should know better. We've talked about this. You should be saying to your fellow congregants, we already have things in place. Let's mediate this from within our own community and preserve a positive witness to those outside whom we're trying to reach with the gospel. Verse seven, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. He's comparing and contrasting the kind of defeats they thought they had. If you lost a lawsuit, they would say, oh, well, I was defeated. He's saying, no, there's a worse kind of defeat here. This is the worst kind of defeat. For you to be defeated, you're defeating yourselves by presenting lawsuits in public when you should have taken care of it yourself. Why not just accept the injustice? Why not just take one on the chin? Take the hit, leave it at that. Why not let yourselves be cheated? Because these are small matters compared to the eternal matters which are involved with the gospel. I've told you before, I'll do the very capsulized version that when we moved into a house years ago, uh, back in another town before we moved closer to what's happening here with Living Water, just a few weeks, right after we had moved into that new place, we had a flood in the basement. I know some of you have experienced floods in basements. They're no fun. And it, we felt that it was a non-disclosure issue because there was nothing in the contract that showed that the seller was aware of previous water in the basement. And when we started pulling up the messy carpet, slosh, slosh, <laughs> we started seeing evidence that there probably had been several times when they had had flooding in the basement and they just covered it over with this new cheap indoor-outdoor carpeting. So we thought, well, we probably could take this to court in some way because it's a non-disclosure issue. Maybe we can get them to even go halvesies with us and pay for half the repair. So we were trying to find what's the best way for us to go about doing this. The more we prayed about it, the more we sought counsel about it, and the more I started getting into this specific passage that we're looking at today, the more I thought, I can do a lot of the work myself. We can do it for a fraction of the cost of hiring somebody to come in and do that. It might be as much to pay a lawyer to represent us in a small claim situation as it would be for me to just buy the stuff myself and do it. And I think there's a witness at stake. And that's what really put me over the edge is what Paul was talking about. If we're trying to witness our faith to people outside, I didn't know if the seller was a believer or not. We'd never really had discussions with that person. But I thought, here's an opportunity for a little bit of a witness. And so I sent a letter and said, we're going to forgive you. We're going to just give you the benefit of the doubt on this one. I'm going to go ahead and fix it myself. So no worries. Let's take this off the table. What was really cool about that was our realtor, the one who had represented us in that transaction, knew that we were facing some pretty expensive repairs. And she was kind of moved. She told us that she was moved by the way we chose to offer grace rather than to get angry about it and try to push the issue. And so she, out of her own money, which is money that we had just given her through the fees that she had earned, she took several hundred dollars out of that profit 
and bought us a sump pump and the installation. I thought that was pretty magnanimous for her to have done that. We learned some things along the way. We learned that it's okay to pay for a good inspection up front because we had taken the word of the other realtor and he said, oh, this has been inspected and everything's fine. Yeah, that's debatable. We should have paid for the inspection. That's on us. But you see, we try to be open-minded enough to learn what we can be responsible for and then take responsibility for that rather than painting the other person as being completely in the wrong and continuing to go after them for everything we can get to win at all costs. And I admit, I was tempted to take that approach when I was first acting out of the flesh because that flesh tugs of war with the spirit. And I wanted to push that really hard for about 24 hours until I had sought counsel, prayed about it, read this passage, and decided to take another approach. Verses 9 through 11, Paul goes through a rather extensive list of the kind of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's very specific about some of those folks. He's reminding them who will not be part of the kingdom and says that some of the believers used to believe, the believers in Corinth used to be in those categories. They used to be people who were completely shunning God's authority in their lives. They wanted complete autonomy. They wanted to, in a sense, be their own gods. And that's the real problem about, about not inheriting the kingdom of God. It's not that we're doing any one specific sin because all of us are sinners and we all deserve hell. And what God offers freely is heaven. But we have to submit to his authority in order for us to get to heaven. And Paul is reminding them, some of you used to belong to those categories, and then you started submitting to God's authority, and you started following Jesus Christ. So why don't you act like it? Why don't you start behaving in such a way to show that watching world that you are being transformed from the old nature into that new nature? Let's, let's give some visible evidence, put some feet to your faith, and do the right things. Well, here's some things that we forget in conflict. There are four of them that we see in this passage. We forget when we're in the middle of that tug of war with our flesh and we're in conflict, we forget who we are in Christ. We forget that what he thinks about us is far more important than what other people think about us. That's our true identity. If we could grasp that, we would be well on our way toward doing a better job of mediating or resolving that conflict. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? You could see that it's those who are in Christ, the Lord's people. That's shown just right there in verse 2. So we tend to forget that when we're in the midst of the heat of battle, the heat of conflict. We also recognize uh, when we're in Christ, we recognize the difference between trivial and important. Paul is showing us in this passage that if we're truly in Christ and we're trying to seek to be more like him and we're reading the red letters in the New Testament, all those words that Christ spoke, and we see how he interacted with people, we'll learn to differentiate between what's trivial, what's temporal, temporary, and what's important. And those things that are important are going to last for eternity. We tend to forget that when we're in the heat of conflict. Is this going to make a difference 100 years from now? That's the question my dad used to ask. That's a really good question. If I'm in the middle of a conflict, if I would pause just long enough, hit the timeout, and say, wait a minute, my next step in this conflict, is this going to help propagate something that's going to last beyond 100 years? In other words, go into eternity? Or is this something that even if I win it now, it's really not going to affect whatever happens 100 years from now? That helps you balance the trivial and the important. 
And I'll tell you, the enemy would love to cause all of us to lose sight of the eternal and get us to build huge mountains out of molehills. He would love for us to concentrate on the trivial and to build those things up and to spend lots and lots of time arguing about them, including arguing with each other about those trivial matters so that the watching world, the world that desperately needs Christ, will have some entertainment and they'll be able to just laugh at us. Well, Paul is also rebuking the leaders. I mentioned that just a couple of minutes ago. He's not just taking the congregation to task. He's reminding the leaders that they should have been reminding the congregation to focus on the eternal matters. They should be working things out according to scriptural principles. He's saying, shame on you for not being the kind of leaders that takes this kind of thing seriously. You need to be leading by dealing with problems when they arise and not just turning your back to them and saying, well, we'll just kind of let them work out. Because even if they were doing that in just sort of a tacit agreement, that was wrong. They needed to take an active role in helping resolve these conflicts. Second thing we can forget when we're in the midst of conflict, we forget the significance of the church. Why go to the outside judges, Paul says, who are not respected by the church? We tend to forget that the reason God has put us in a community of believers is because that community helps us learn to navigate life better. All of us learn things by working with each other in this community that helps us become better community members in the world itself. Everything we do in church should be a preparation for us to be salt and light so that we're making a difference in a positive way to the world around us. And we tend to forget that. There's a huge role that all of us should understand as members of the church. And it helps us to understand that we can't just separate the spiritual from all the other aspects of our lives. There may be some that would say, well, yeah, on Sunday, I put a little spiritual component into my life. That's good. I enjoy that. For that one hour a week, I'm really spiritual. <laughs> but there are all these other things that, uh, you know, the Bible's not going to help me with that. I need to be looking for the real experts if I'm going to get through this conflict. I need some lawyers. I need some judges. Now, there are Christian lawyers. I know a few of them, and they're good folks. Just wanted to make that clear. Every part of our lives is spiritual. That's why we need Christian lawyers. We need Christian doctors. We need Christian scientists helping us find answers to the pandemic. We need all the Christians in all the right places so that we can, as a church, influence the world in, in a very positive way. So God's reign in our lives should affect our jobs, our relationships, our money, our time management, the choice of media that we immerse ourselves in, every aspect of our lives. And Paul is saying, you're not doing that if you're going outside the church to try to mediate these trivial matters. Third thing that we can forget in conflict, we forget the biblical process of resolving conflict. Now, these people already had some of the good rabbinic teachings, like I mentioned in the Talmud, and in the Torah, they can see some things. And yet we now, even in today's New Testament church, we have Matthew chapter 18, gives us some good fundamental advice about how we should approach conflict resolution. But even beyond those practical things, we have the character building things that show us that with the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of sin, reveals truth, all of us, all of us should be open to learning what the Holy Spirit is teaching us so that I can ask myself, what part am I playing? In resolving this conflict? What have I done already that has contributed to the conflict? Because if God starts to reveal, oh, well, you said this, and you can understand why that would have been inflammatory, 
I need to recognize that and I need to repent for that. I need to confess that. I need to apologize for that. Because as people start learning to listen lovingly to one another and hearing each other, it brings us together. So we're both looking at the same picture. And if we're doing that because we know there's something more important, more valuable than just being right or just winning the argument, then we can arrive at unity together. So we need to remember the biblical process and the biblical tools that God has given us, including the Holy Spirit in our lives for resolving conflict. This is why Paul was so sternly worded in this section of his letter. He says, I say this to your shame, shame on you. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another? When Paul says something is shameful, it's shameful. And he knew that if they were bringing shame upon the church itself or upon the gospel, it was something important. When we resolve conflict God's way, then we start to understand that we're representing Christ and being Christ to one another. Look what Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And he didn't say, by this, they will know that you are my disciples, that you can win a good fight, that you are so knowledgeable that you can be certain that your position is the right position, that you voted for the right candidate. Oh, did I go there? I'm, did I say that out loud? Yeah. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Say it with me. Love, love one another. That's right. If we're loving one another, we're going to stop ourselves long enough to listen carefully and understand where that other person is coming from and be able to change some of our perspective because there's no way that I know everything you know. And there's no way that you can look at me and say, oh, well, I, I already know everything you know. We, we don't. The only way we can know more about each other is to listen long enough to hear from each other. And when we have the Holy Spirit and love as the motive for conflict resolution, then we're aiming at the right thing. We're fighting for unity rather than fighting each other. So when we forget this, we bring shame on the church and shame on the gospel. Fourth thing that we can forget in conflict when we're starting to wrestle with our flesh, we forget what really matters. We forget the priorities. Even to have such lawsuits with another is a defeat for you, Paul says. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Take one on the chin, take one for the gipper. Why not just let yourselves be cheated? If you're cheated out of a little bit, maybe you learned a lesson about that. Okay, I walked into that, I was fooled, I learned a lesson. No big deal. But to continue to be angry enough about it to take people, especially fellow believers, to court over it, you're not learning what really needs to be learned because you're forgetting that there are some things that are far more valuable than that little bit that you got cheated out of. Is there a more important win? Paul thinks so. Is there something more important than getting back what was taken from you? If you feel that you've been robbed of something, even if it's not monetary, even if it's not property, maybe it's part of your character or whatever. If you feel injured in some way, is there something more important than retaliation or retribution or justice defined the way you define justice? Paul's response would be, why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and you're cheating each other. 
You're cheating your fellow believers by the way you're behaving, trying to take them to court to win at all costs so that hopefully you'll get at least most back of what you thought was stolen from you. Yeah, there's a more important win. The more important win is the witness of the gospel of Christ. So what is more important? Paul gave that to us, and it's going to come a little bit later on in this specific uh, letter, in fact. What is it that really matters to a citizen of the kingdom of God? Is it money? Is that the primary thing we should be concerned about? Is it our reputation? Reputation's important. I always feel bad if I feel like my reputation is getting tainted falsely. But is that the main thing that I should be about? Is that the most important matter? Is being right? A couple of weeks ago, I played a video clip from somebody who said, I understand that certainty can become an idol. I want to be so certain that my position is right that it turns into an idol rather than understanding. I need to leave a little question mark in the margin to say, I might not be right about this issue. So I need to leave a little bit of wiggle room there and enough to keep me listening carefully to somebody else rather than always just hammering my point down because then I just burn bridges instead of building bridges. So let's look at this where Paul said what was the most important thing. This is from the 15th chapter of this very same letter. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that is the most important thing. Paul was just elevating that right up. He says, if you're going to look at something that says this is what motivates us, this is the most important thing for the believer, it's the gospel. And this sums up the gospel. Christ, who could have argued his point and won, Christ, who had everything on his side, including truth, because he was the embodiment of truth, Christ, who could have been absolutely certain that he was correct, because he was, and yet he willingly gave himself up for the sake of reconciling lost people to himself. That's the gospel. And that's the example, Paul says, we need to follow as we're trying to reconcile people with ourselves in conflict. When we suffer an injustice, do we tend to forget our identity in Christ? Do we forget that what he thinks about us is far more important than what somebody else thinks about us? Do we forget the significance of the church? Do we forget that God has gifted us with all these fellow believers around us to help chip off the rough edges and to point each other to the word that starts to transform us, to change us into the image of Christ, so that together as a body of Christ, we become better at influencing the world around us? Do we forget the biblical principles of conflict resolution, which have been there for us all along? Do we just slide right past those and start looking to secular answers to our spiritual problems? Do we forget what really matters? And do we forget that our primary purpose is to point people to Jesus Christ? And just because we're winning a specific argument, even though we might win that argument, if we do that, what have we truly won? If we have turned people away from the gospel, what have we won? How are we interacting? I saw this just this morning, uh, maybe less than two hours ago, and I copied it because I thought it was so, so good. It's uh, very facetious. Life is short. Make sure you spend as much time as possible on the internet arguing with strangers about politics and things you disagree with. Does that sound like great advice? 
to me, it sounds a little bit like Paul being facetious sometimes when he can become facetious. When he says, is there anyone among you who can do this stuff? He's being facetious in a couple of those verses that we looked at even today. But yeah, that's facetious. Because life is short, we ought not to be spending as much time as we do probably arguing with total strangers about things that are not going to last for 100 years. Are they important? Yeah, probably. I know they're important to us. I know that my opinion is very important to me, but it's very difficult to mediate conflict resolution by writing on a bathroom wall. And that's what the internet has become for many of us. We're writing our opinion on a wall. It even says that, put that on your wall. You put it on a wall, somebody else comes along, they write their opinion under your opinion, and that's what we get. Folks, I'm gonna come right out on a limb here and say, and I have to start with myself first. I confess, I've spent too much time in the last six months reading stuff that I probably shouldn't have even been reading because it just makes me mad. And I'm not changing anybody's opinion by writing on a bathroom wall. And I think that probably would apply to many of us. So here's the thing. I, if I'm going to get really practical in what I would suggest, and I want to, this thing has been preaching at me this week, so I'm joining you, okay? But I would say, let's challenge each other as the body of Christ. Let's spend less time on the internet arguing with strangers, because I think that we're probably overestimating how much good we're doing, and we're not going to be changing their opinions by writing on a bathroom wall. I really don't think we're making that much change. I think the real place for change is by being Christ to them. That means that we probably can't do it as effectively in social media as we can one-on-one -on -one in a good coffee conversations. Serve one another, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, build one another up, do all the one another's. Are we following Christ's example in the way we respond to conflict? We know that from Philippians chapter 2, he gave up his divine privileges, gave them up, took on the position of a slave, became a human for Pete's sake, humbled himself in obedience, even death. He encountered death, the death of a criminal on a cross for our sakes. He did all that. Why would he do that? Because he was resolving the greatest conflict known to man, the conflict caused by sin, which causes us to be rebellious to God's authority. And he wanted to provide a way for all of us to be reconciled with Christ. So if we are ministers of reconciliation along with Christ as believers, then shouldn't we be following his example? Is conflict resolution going to cost us? Absolutely. Yes. Sometimes we're going to take stuff on the chin. Sometimes our reputation is going to be tainted. Sometimes we're going to be stolen from. Just take it. If we have eternity in mind, if we're following Jesus Christ's method of reconciliation, if we know that the, the message of the gospel is more important than our message that we're right, then we're going to have to start understanding what it means sometimes to die to self, to lay our lives down. Greater love hath no man than this, that someone would give up their life for a friend. If we're going to do that, even with people who disagree with us, then we start to move closer and closer to becoming the kind of salt and light influencers 
that God has for us and wants for us to be. So here's a question. Is my next step in this conflict that I'm experiencing right now going to do one of these two things? Is it going to bring honor to Christ and the gospel and the church? If so, that's the next step. Or is it going to bring shame to Christ? Is it going to bring shame upon the gospel? Is it going to shame the church? I probably should think of a different step if that's the answer. Many conflicts means for us that we have many opportunities to be Christ to others. I don't know about you, but I've been a nervous wreck because of the pandemic and because of politics. I've been a nervous wreck, and there are times when I just get so upset. Now more than ever, because we're in the midst of things that heighten all these conflicts and put them right in our faces, we need to be Christ to those who are in conflict. This particular passage ministered to me this week because I find myself getting really anxious about these conflicts that we see all around us. Let's pray. Let's pray that God is going to reveal himself to us and through us to a watching world so that we can bring honor to him even in the midst of all these conflicts. So would you join me in prayer for that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I understand how difficult this is because I have a sin nature that wars with my spiritual nature as well. And I know I'm not alone. And so I pray along with all the other people who are struggling as I, as I do, that you would help me win these battles because I'm learning how to lay my life down and to be like Christ, to have his attitude like Philippians 2. I pray that you would continue to work in my life through your spirit if necessary, take me to task. Reveal things that come out of my mouth that I need to apologize for. Reveal areas in my life where I need to shut my mouth and listen long enough to find out why the person on the opposite side of an issue feels the way they do so that perhaps I can understand them better and so that at the very least, they'll understand that I care about them enough to listen. And I pray that in all of our lives, we would serve other people sacrificially so much that they would look at us. We would not be entertainment for people around us because of our disputes, rather that those people would be attracted to a group of people who would lay down their own lives for their sakes. I know it's counterintuitive because it goes against everything that the old nature has for us. And so that's why we desperately need your Holy Spirit at work, helping us overcome that old nature. And I thank you that you're going to do that. And I thank you for conflicts that will be resolved in the name of Christ, especially between believers. And then I pray that our unity and our love for one another would display to a watching world that we are your disciples. And these things I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who makes that all possible.